Today we, we look at Psalm 29. It's a psalm of praise. It's, a, it's kind of a wisdom psalm. just so happens that the content of this psalm is something that happened last night in our area. Anybody woken up by the storm last night? Just driving to church, there were some limbs down. It wasn't terrible, but it was. we had a kid running in our room in the middle of the night, afraid. Uh, so, so let me just take a poll real quick. Who likes thunderstorms? Because some of you weirdos like thunderstorms. Okay. A lot of you weirdos like... <laughs> just kidding. You're not, you're not weird. Uh, what are some things that you like about it? The, the thunder? Okay. Anything else? You got the thunder, the clouds, Rowan? That's kind of a different aspect of the storm that you love. Okay. Anything else? You like the rain, the sound of it, like on the roof and outside, and it's kind of soothing. Have you ever, though, and last night it was all dark, but have you ever been, like, the ideal place is, like, on a covered porch, and you can see the rain, like, in the distance, and it's just coming towards you, and you can kind of start to smell the humidity and just the the, the smell of the rain. Like, that's pretty neat. I like that aspect of a storm, and you can... Sometimes even it's like this wall, right? This wall of water that's just coming your way. And you can see the lightning flashing in the clouds in the distance. And you can kind of hear that rumble of the thunder. And there's some neat things about a storm that, you know, we can enjoy and appreciate. And there are kind of some strong emotions that that come with that. You know, for Roanne, that's one kind of emotion of, of family togetherness. Some of us, our emotions aren't all that positive and we want to run and hide under the blankets when a storm comes. We have maybe some fear. I grew up in a, an A-frame house and I, my room was up in the corner with windows on two sides and the trees were like 10 feet from my window. And so when it would storm and they'd swing back and forth and I envisioned as a child this giant limb crashing through and crushing me. So I don't have a ton of good <laughs> memories of storms. So storms can be kind of beautiful and frightening at the same time. It wasn't that long ago, besides last night, that a big storm came through. And there was there were big trees down in our area. Um, I think power was out for some of us in a while. And it was it was kind of that nighttime when our kids should have been asleep, but... Obviously they weren't, and so Nikki and I are in bed, and all of a sudden you heard this clap of thunder. I mean, just boom. And we kind of looked at each other, and we knew somebody was coming in, and it wasn't long, and little the pattering of little footsteps on our floor, we had some kids in our room. So there was some fear involved in that. And, and even though we had some stuff in our area that was you know, destroyed and down. You think about, or if you've ever seen, uh, or seen pictures of the devastation from Hurricane Ida, the one that just came through at the end of August, just incredible damage. I mean, there are cars that are just, they look like Hot Wheels, are just up in trees and flipped over and buildings are just smashed. Um, I think I read that there's, has cost like $50 billion, um, just in the U.S. alone. It was a big storm and it had some power to it. I think that's the kind of picture that David's got in his mind as he writes Psalm 29. 
this thunderstorm that he describes, it serves as like this tangible symbol of the voice of God, of the power of God. And so maybe he was in, in Jerusalem and this this storm is coming and it's coming across the Mediterranean Sea and into the forest of Lebanon where those big cedars are and it comes down south towards Jordan and down towards uh, Israel. And he's seeing this wall of water, this rain come through and he's hearing the thunder and he's seeing the lightning. And Maybe that's what's happening as he writes Psalm 29. He saw this all happen and immediately his mind thought of something. Immediately his mind thought of the voice of God, the power of God, the presence of God. And I'm going to make a statement before we read the text together. I'm just going to make this statement about the storm. And you're going to agree with me initially. And you're going to shake your head and you're going to say, yeah. But as you think about it more, you're going to kind of start to to question some things. Here's the statement. The storm serves a purpose. So we say, okay, yeah, right. For David, this storm served a purpose. It reminded him of God's power and it caused him to praise the Lord because of it. You know, that's that's the purpose. We're good. Well, here's the thing. Storms cause damage. Storms cause problems. It's it's a rare, pretty frequent thing that storms, whether it's in the, in the summer or in the winter, they cause power outages in our homes. Um, they cause accidents. They cause floods. So my kids, when they ran into our room that night, the big thunderclap struck, they were convinced that mommy and daddy would keep them safe from the storm. So they ran to us where they knew we were going to be. Well, David describes this powerful storm, one that breaks huge cedar trees, shakes forests, sends flashes of fire through the sky, and there's a purpose in it that I don't want us to miss. Let's read the text and then pray. Psalm 29, Psalm of David. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The voice, the Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth, strips the forest bare, and in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Father, we want that. We want you to to bless us with strength and with peace. But Lord, oftentimes that includes storms in that process. And Lord, we, we see pretty quickly and clearly, though, that uh, this storm does not happen apart from you. That you're involved in this somehow that we need to understand better. And so, Lord, as we, as we study, as we learn, as we think, as we trust in your spirit to guide us and teach us today, Lord, uh, we pray that it is, is all uh, working together 
to give us a clear glimpse of, of Jesus, a clear understanding of his um, activity in our lives, in the world, and a greater appreciation of the cross and his sacrifice. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Now, uh, before we get too deep into the application of the text, I do want to notice some things first. So you can look through this, and I'm sure you noticed as we read it, Jason kind of let the kids in on this a little bit, but there's some phrases that are repeated, so let's just mention them. The, vo- the, the phrase, the voice of the Lord, is used seven different times. The word Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, meaning self-existent one, eternal one, this was the Jewish national name of God. That word is used all of 18 times in just these 11 verses. And God says, in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, he says, I am the Lord, that's my name. Not, not complicated, right? There's not a long list of things. He says, I'm the Lord, that's my name. I, I, my glory I will give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. So there's no question here who David is calling people to praise. There's no question at all. There is some question, though, and we'll just touch on this briefly. In verse 1, what this, O heavenly beings, is referring to. In some of your translations, it may not read that way. It may say uh, mighty ones or sons of God. So is David referring to angels, heavenly beings? Is he referring to um, people of earth, powerful men on earth, powerful ones, sons of God? You know, honestly, we're not totally sure. A lot of times that phrasing is used for heavenly beings, for angels in the Old Testament. But sometimes it's it's not. Um, Paul Tripp, and I tend to agree with him, he says it's probably referring to both, angels and men. He points out in this that there's something specific that people, humankind, you guys, and heavenly beings both share. We're attracted to something in particular, something specific. So... It's at this point that I want us to look at a word that I think ties this whole thing together, and it's what Paul Tripp is talking about, saying we're attracted to something specific. Any idea from the text what it is that we're attracted to? It's used several times in the first couple of verses, and then again towards the end of verse 9. It's what everyone in the temple is crying out to God together. Glory. Glory. We're attracted to glory, to beauty, to, to things like that, to emotions like that. Paul Tripp goes so far as to say that we're actually hardwired for glory. We're hardwired to look for it, to see it, and to praise it where we find it. It's why we, we love a home-cooked meal that starts with just ingredients, but it's, they're put together in such a, a wonderful way that it kind of, you know, makes your taste buds dance a little bit. That, I mean, that's we're attracted to that kind of thing. We love that kind of thing. It's why we get excited when our favorite baseball team goes on a long winning streak. Right? Because we see, and if you saw some of the highlights of those games, some of those plays were just incredible. Like stuff shouldn't have happened that way. And it did. And, and we're, we're like, we're drawn to that. We're attracted to that kind of thing. It's why there's certain pieces of music or songs that you know that just kind of give you goosebumps when you hear it. We're drawn to beauty. We're drawn to glory. And so it's right, whether David's talking about mighty men of the earth with authority and impact, or whether he's talking about heavenly beings, it's right for him to direct our attention back to the glory of God and to tell us that we ought to give him praise. He says, ascribe to the Lord 
O heavenly beings, ascribe to him glory and strength. Now, why do you think David has to command our hearts to give God glory? Ascribe to the Lord glory. Why do we have to be told to do this? I think the answer is probably obvious, but let me help us out anyway. It's because our hearts are sinful and they're blinded to the glory of God. I think that's why David says, do this, ascribe to him glory and strength. I mean, we've already seen in this Psalms series, like from Psalm 19, verse 1, that the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Evidence of God is everywhere. His glory is there to be seen. Everywhere we look, the created world is echoing the truth that God exists and God can be known personally. But how many of us roll out of bed, drag ourselves to work, come home to sit in front of the TV for a few hours, and then almost just completely miss the beauty and glory of God on the day-to-day. It's easy to do. If we're not reveling in God's glory, then we're either blind to it or we're replacing it with something else because we're attracted to glory. Maybe we're ascribing glory to far lesser things. Let me quote Paul Tripp. He says, sin causes you to replace the glory of God with other glories so that the glory that rules your heart, the glory that commands your life, the glory that becomes the basis of the decisions you make and the actions you take and the words you speak is not, in fact, the glory of God at all. I don't think our culture is the only one that's guilty of this, though. If you think back to the people of Jesus' day, specifically in the situation uh, when he fed the 5,000 people, They did the same thing. They were guilty of the same thing. After Jesus fed the 5,000 people, what did he do immediately? Does anybody remember? Immediately he went and did something. He went, he went away to be by himself, right? He got away from the crowds. He went away to be by himself. Why? Well, the text tells, I think it's in John, the text tells us that he went away because he knew the hearts of the people. They weren't seeking him for himself. What were they coming after him for? More food. He had filled them up. Maybe he could do it again. Maybe this, they thought, maybe this is the key to defeating Rome. Maybe this guy can make food so that we can maybe starve them out, but we can be good. That was what their minds were filtering everything through. How can we, def- how can we defeat Rome? How can the Messiah overtake them? So they had seen the miracle of the fish and the loaves, and they had eaten their fill, And they thought that that's what Jesus was offering. So he went away. And when they came to him, his disciples especially, they were talking to him and he explained what had happened. He said that he, they didn't, he didn't want them to follow him for that reason. And then he goes on to, I don't, I don't know if I'd say confuse them, but make it even more shocking when he starts saying, Hey, you, if you're going to live eternally, you don't, you can't eat the things of this life. You got to eat me my body and my blood. And so, and then that really set them off and they didn't understand what was going on. They didn't want to follow Jesus because he was the Messiah. They wanted to follow him because he filled their stomachs. They missed the point. Just like we often do with the storm, they missed the point of this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. They replaced the glory of God with a desire for a full stomach. The feeding of the 5,000 wasn't about filling their stomachs with physical food. It was about their need for food that only Jesus could give them. And it was himself. 
It was his body and his blood that saves and nourishes eternally. The feeding of the 5,000 was like a finger pointing to something else, something greater. My family and I, we recently took a trip to Gulf Shores. That's where we were a couple of weeks. And uh, we were driving down there, and we got kind of near Mississippi, the edge of Mississippi, getting into Alabama. And, you know, you start to see signs for stuff. And so we saw a sign for Gulf Shores, Alabama. That's where we were going. And so we pointed it out to the kids, and, you know, we were all excited. And you could kind of start to see glimpses of the big Mobile Bay that's there, big body of water. And you start imagining the sand on the beach and the the waves rolling in. And um, guess what? Gulf Shores was still 60 miles away. So we didn't pull over at the sign and start unloading our van to spend the week at the sign, did we? No, the sign points to the destination. The feeding of the 5,000 was a sign that pointed to something else. The storm is something that points to something else. It's not the destination, it's just a sign that points to it. So the people missed that the feeding of the 5,000 was pointing to the fact that Jesus is God in the flesh. He really is the Messiah. God created the world and everything in it, and he said that it was good, but the things of this world, they're not God. They won't satisfy us. They're like that earthly food that we're, we enjoy for the moment, but guess what? You're hungry in another three, four hours. Some of us earlier than that. <laughs> Certainly my kids are. But by the Spirit, we can see that these things that God has blessed us with in this life, they do serve a purpose. They're the sign, though. They're not the destination. They're the sign that points to the destination. They point us to the real God. So those things I mentioned earlier, beautiful music, wonderfully cooked meals, um, incredible feats of athletic ability or whatever it might be. These things are just kind of those fingers pointing to something much greater in glory, to the glory of God himself. And so it's good that David commands us to ascribe to the Lord glory because, man, we get awfully confused about what we should find truly glorious, don't we? We do. We get confused about it. Now, let me quickly point something else out before we move on. David isn't telling us to to give to God or to ascribe things to God that like God didn't have before. You know, when we, when we praise the Lord for his glory and we say God is glorious, it's not like he wasn't glorious until we said that. When we give him glory or attribute strength or splendor or glory to him, we're not conjuring those things out of thin air and saying, well, this is for you. That's not what we're doing at all. We're just simply recognizing God for who he really is. It's That's all already bound up in his character, in his personhood. We're just saying, oh, I see it now. I see it better now, Lord. Yeah, you are, you're more glorious than anything I've ever seen. You're more beautiful than anything I've ever set my eyes on. So now we see it and we ascribe glory and credit to where it's really due. To the Lord himself. And if glory is such a big deal, then verses 3 through 10 make sense now as this verifiable evidence that God is truly glorious. Now here's perhaps a great understatement, the biggest one I'll make today. The voice of the Lord is powerful. This psalm says 
some examples of how this is true, and David uses this physical idea of a storm and the power of it to help us understand the power and glory of God. He says that this storm breaks trees, it shatters trees in half, it shakes whole forests, it flashes lightning, it brings rain and the flood. And I say it's an understatement to say that the voice of the Lord is powerful because of how the rest of Scripture talks about the voice of God. Think about what the voice of God has done. I'll give you just a second. Think about other things in Scripture that the voice of God has done. And I'll give you a good starting point. Genesis 1-1. Right? Everything that has been created was created by the voice of God. Talk about power. The most powerful man in the world, whoever you might think that that is, can't create something out of nothing with just their voice. And it happened then. But God did. He created everything out of nothing. So he spoke all thing to, things into existence with his voice. Here's another incredible, miraculous thing that the voice of God does. It speaks life into dead people. <laughs> it's the voice of the Lord. The voice of God reveals the mysteries of the Lord through his word that he's given to his people. So I don't think David's logic here is all that complicated. I'm, I'm glad it's not. But here it is. If the storm that he's describing has the power to snap trees in half and wreck things with the, the, the water and the floods and to, and to hurt things with lightning and to do all of these things, and if God commands that storm with his voice, then it's easy to understand how his, he himself, his voice, is more powerful than even the strongest storm we'd ever seen. Even Ida, even Hurricane Katrina, some of the biggest storms that we've had are nothing in comparison to the power of the voice of God. Now, there's a bit of an unusual phrase at the beginning of verse 9 that I want to just kind of make mention of, and it's this, the voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth. (laughs) Does that seem a little strange in the middle of everything here? I thought so, and so it kind of looked at it a little bit more. I think it sticks out here because everything else that's kind of being referenced is destruction or power or, you know, big momentous things. And then it's like, oh, it also lets the deer give birth, like causes the deer to give birth. That's not really quite such an amazing thing. It's not really a big deal for this nice little quaint deer family to you know, have a baby. What's the deal? It seems a little out of place, but I think this illustrates something important that I don't, I don't want to miss together. We've already talked about the power of God, the voice of the Lord, but balanced with that is the fact that God has a personal, I would say intimate relationship with his creation. So much so that his voice causes the little deer to give birth, to care for his creation. Not only does he command the storm, the weather, but he also cares for his creation. Now, again, the birth of the deer may not be as significant as the birth of a person made in his image. I would say it's not. But David just uses it as another illustration to teach us something about God. He didn't just start the world spinning and say, go ahead, do your thing. There are people that believe that. He didn't just set the world in motion, and then let it go to fend for itself, to do its own thing. He sustains it. 
He cares for it. He upholds it. That's actually the word that Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, when speaking about Christ, this is what this, what he says. He upholds the universe by, by what? The word of his power. Isn't that cool? By the word of his power, the world started and continues according to the power and command of God. Even something as insignificant as the birth of a fawn, a baby deer. Because he loves and has a personal relationship with his creation. Now verse 10 says that the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. The voice of the Lord not only commands the thunder, the lightning, the deer giving birth, but it commands the power of the raging flood as well. The Lord, it says, sits enthroned as king forever. Here's, I think, what we can gather from this, that his position as the forever king proves his power is not temporary. It's not diminished by what happens on the earth. His rule and reign are eternal forever. He sits enthroned as king, but not just a king until he dies or he's assassinated or he's voted out. He's a king forever. Forever. From before the world was created to long after, eternity after it's gone. But the all-powerful king cares for his creation in that special way, as we said. And that's, I think, what he's getting into and what he goes to at the end of verse 9. And here's where I think the glory idea comes back into view. Look at in verse 9 what says, Every person is going to say, We're going to join together, and in his temple all cry, Glory. Glory. Now, we've read about amazing and glorious aspects of God's character and his work, about his power that's beyond measure and far greater than any one of us and higher than any person on earth. Just his voice alone commands the storm. It upholds the existence of every living thing on earth. No one even comes close in his power. But perhaps the greatest display of power that we've ever seen was shown when God came to dwell with his people. When God came to dwell in the midst of his people. Think about John chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it goes on to say that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The voice of God dwelt among us. That may be the most incredible display and evidence of the power of God. The God who can control weather and his creation in any way possible has come down, has condescended to us, to come to us. Why would he do that? I don't expect you to really answer that question. I don't think I can answer that. Why would he do that, though? I think of that often in my own life. And considering my own sinful heart, why would God do that? Why would the eternal God, the king, the forever king, come down to save me? To dwell with sinners. Now surely I think the picture that, one of the pictures that we need to see here is the, the kind of Shekinah glory that God was dwelling in the temple that the people visibly saw in the midst of the Israelite camp. I think that's probably what David kind of has in mind as he's thinking about this dwelling with them. All the people in his temple cry glory. Not only did God choose to dwell in the midst of his people though, Get this, through Christ, he has chosen to dwell within his people. 
within his people. Paul says this to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 3.16. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Now, that's in a long discourse about sexual sin and using your bodies for God's glory, but he's making a clear statement here that you are the temple of God, Christian. He dwells in you. His spirit is within you. Have you forgotten this glorious truth? I think sometimes we do. Just like we forget or overlook the purpose of a storm, we forget the idea that the spirit of God, God himself, lives within us. You know, maybe you recognize the power of God and you say, yeah, he's in constant control of the world. He directs all of these things. But maybe you've forgotten that at the moment of salvation, his spirit also now lives in you. Because of Christ, you don't have to go to a particular place to see the glory of God anymore. Here's the beauty of the gospel. Glory has come and found you. Paul Tripp says you don't have to search for glory. Because if you're God's child, glory has found you. The beauty and glory that we naturally seek is only found in Christ. It's not found in the wonderful home-cooked dinner. It's not found in the song that gives you goosebumps or in the Cardinals winning streak. Certainly it's not found in any of those things. It's found in Christ. And this brings us to the final verse in the psalm, verse 11. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. And I think this now makes the progression of this psalm makes a lot of sense now. You know, surely I think David meant this on a physical level. You know, he was thinking about the nation of Israel and their enemies and those who were coming against them. And he was saying, Lord, give us your strength and peace. But on this side of the cross, we see this as a cry to God for strength and peace inwardly. How has the eternal and all-powerful God given strength and peace to his people, we might ask, by the person and work of Christ in the spirit that now dwells in his children. That's how we see strength and peace. Remember 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that God's spirit dwells in you, Christian? His spirit gives strength, the inward fortitude to persevere and to press on. The spirit gives us peace, the confidence of our hearts that cannot be shaken by our circumstances, by our situation, And now reflecting on these things, consider this question as we round things out today. What glory is capturing your heart? Christ came not just to reveal the God of all glory as he walked on this earth, but to free us from slavery to all the wrong kinds of glory, to seeing it in all the wrong kinds of things. He welcomes you today to come to him, to confess your struggle and to find the forgiveness that can only be found in Christ. Jeremiah records the words of the Lord to Israel in Jeremiah chapter 10. You can turn there if you want. We'll go to Jeremiah 10, verse 12 and 13. In almost a comical way in that text, the Lord through Jeremiah is making it perfectly clear that being satisfied with earthly glory is absolute foolishness. Bowing down to idols is ridiculous because he says there's no breath in them. They are worthless. They are a work of delusion. And he calls idols uh, scarecrows in a cucumber field. Nothing on earth compares to God. And nothing will complete us but him. 
You can read this with me, Jeremiah 10, 12 through 13. It's he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his, by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there's a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and he brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Does that sound familiar at all? Does it sound a little bit like Psalm 29? So both David and now Jeremiah capture the essence and power of God with the metaphor of a storm, of wind and rain and water, lightning. But who brings those things? Who causes the rain and the lightning and the thunder? God does. God commands the storm, and its purpose in your life is the same kind of purpose as the feeding of the 5,000. I don't want us to miss this. The purpose of the storm is to point you to God. The purpose of the storm is to point us to God. Now, I realize that that's not earth-shattering news. You may have thought this before, but maybe you've been resisting the storm. Maybe you've been despairing in the storm. Maybe you've been racking your brain trying to understand why the storm is in your life at all. We're tempted to do these things. But if God really is who David and Jeremiah and all the rest of Scripture illustrates him to be, then surely he's powerful enough to put purpose in the storm, right? So next time you see and hear and feel a physical storm rolling in, maybe it's later today, I don't know, I hope that we're reminded of the glory and power, but also the intimacy of the Lord. Be reminded of your need to see him as more glorious than any other thing. And the next time that you see and hear and feel maybe a relational storm or an emotional storm or a financial one, be reminded to look to God for strength and comfort and peace. Be reminded that these things are found only in Christ, only in a personal and growing relationship with him who is the fulfillment of every promise of God. There's purpose in the storm in your life. Don't miss it, friend. Don't miss it. Let's pray. Lord, I say don't miss it, um, and I'm preaching it to myself because I tend to miss it just like everyone else does. Even though I know what to look for, even though I know I shouldn't, I still am. Lord, because my heart is content to find and see glory in really a lot of other lesser things. And so, Lord, would you save me from that and my friends who are listening today. Lord, save us from being captivated by lesser things. We don't want to be like the people who saw the miraculous feeding of the 5,000 and just wanted to have our bellies filled again. Lord, we want to be people who search and seek after you for who you are that you are the Messiah, you do really save, you rescue people out of sin. Why you do it is a mystery that we don't fully grasp. And yet, Lord, David has called us to something that we can do today. Ascribe glory and power and strength to you and your name. And so, Lord, we're many of us, maybe even all of us in some fashion, there's a storm in our life and it's, uh, we see the, the metaphorical lightning and we hear the thunder and sometimes we just want to go crawl back in the bed 
and pull the covers up and wish for it all to be gone. But Lord, we're missing the purpose. We're missing the finger that's pointing us back to something more glorious, something more powerful than that. Lord, if you command that storm, then surely you can command the things in our life. Surely you can command us. And so, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ who have been distracted by lesser things. Lord, reorient them back to see Christ as most beautiful, most glorious. Lord, and for my friends who don't know you, who are listening today, Lord, I pray that they'd be convinced of this truth, that in in and of themselves there's nothing good that you would save them for. But because of Christ, they are welcomed freely into your family. Lord, I pray that you would move on hearts this morning. In Christ's name, I ask it. Amen.